Lying was his habit. He lied when he said he played hockey for the Detroit Red Wings and that he once married a starlet from Mexico. But when he lied in announcing he held the Congressional Medal of Honor, respondent ventured onto new ground. For that lie violates a federal criminal statute, the Stolen Valor Act of 2005. In light of the significant number of First Amendment free speech cases before the court this term, I've decided to add to the show's library of First Amendment Supreme Court case law, beginning with the 2012 opinion of the court that I'll be reading today, United States v. Alvarez. In this case, the court is asked whether the Stolen Valor Act, which became a federal law in 2005, violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. The first of two acts with its name, the Stolen Valor Act of 2005, made it a federal crime to falsely present oneself as a recipient of any U.S. military medal or decoration. If convicted, defendants might have been imprisoned for up to six months unless the decoration lied about was the Medal of Honor, in which case imprisonment could have been up to a year. About a year after the Supreme Court ruled that the act, as it was, violated the First Amendment, Congress passed the Stolen Valor Act of 2013, which made it a crime to falsely claim to have received one or more of the Valor Awards specified in the act, in order to obtain money, property, or other tangible benefits. And now, the 2012 opinion of the court in United States v. Alvarez. Justice Kennedy announced the judgment of the court and delivered an opinion in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor joined. Justice Breyer filed an opinion concurring in the judgment in which Justice Kagan joined. Justice Alito filed a dissenting opinion in which Justices Scalia and Thomas joined. Lying was his habit. Xavier Alvarez, the respondent here, lied when he said that he played hockey for the Detroit Red Wings and that he once married a starlet from Mexico. But when he lied in announcing he held the Congressional Medal of Honor, Respondent ventured into new ground. For that lie violates a federal criminal statute, the Stolen Valor Act of 2005. In 2007, Respondent attended his first public meeting as a board member of the Three Valley Water District Board. The board is a governmental entity with headquarters in Claremont, California. He introduced himself as follows. I'm a retired Marine of 25 years. I retired in the year 2001. Back in 1987, I was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. I got wounded many times by the same guy. None of this was true. For all the record shows, respondent statements were but a pathetic attempt to gain respect that eluded him. The statements do not seem to have been made to secure employment or financial benefits or admission to privileges reserved for those who had earned the medal. Respondent was indicted under the Stolen Valor Act 
for lying about the Congressional Medal of Honor at the meeting. The United States District Court for the Central District of California rejected his claim that the statute is invalid under the First Amendment. Respondent pleaded guilty to one count, reserving the right to appeal on his First Amendment claim. The United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, in a decision by a divided panel, found the act invalid under the First Amendment and reversed the conviction. With further opinions on the issue and over a dissent by seven judges, rehearing on Bonk was denied. This court granted certiorari. After certiorari was granted, and in an unrelated case, the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, also in a decision by a divided panel, found the act constitutional. So there is now a conflict in the Court of Appeals on the question of the act's validity. This is the second case in two terms requiring the court to consider speech that can disparage or attempt to steal honor that belongs to those who fought for this nation in battle. Here, the statement that the speaker held the medal was an intended, undoubted lie. It is right and proper that Congress, over a century ago, established an award so the nation can hold in its highest respect and esteem those who, in the course of carrying out the supreme and noble duty of contributing to the defense of the rights and honor of the nation, have acted with extraordinary honor. And it should be uncontested that this is a legitimate government objective, indeed a most valued national aspiration and purpose. This does not end the inquiry, however. Fundamental constitutional principles require that laws enacted to honor the brave must be consistent with the precepts of the Constitution for which they fought. The government contends the criminal prohibition is a proper means to further its purpose in creating and awarding the medal. When content-based speech regulation is in question, however, exacting scrutiny is required. Statutes suppressing or restricting speech must be judged by the sometimes inconvenient principles of the First Amendment. By this measure, the statutory provisions under which respondent was convicted must be held invalid, and his conviction must be set aside. Part 1. Respondent's claim to hold the Congressional Medal of Honor was false. There is no room to argue about interpretation or shades of meaning. On this premise, respondent violated Section 704B, and because the lie concerned the Congressional Medal of Honor, he was subject to an enhanced penalty under subsection C. Those statutory provisions are as follows. B. False claims about receipt of military decorations or medals. Whoever falsely represents himself or herself, verbally or in writing, to have been awarded any decoration or medal authorized by Congress for the armed forces of the United States, shall be fined under this title, 
imprisoned not more than six months, or both. C. Enhanced penalty for offenses involving Congressional Medal of Honor. 1. In general, if a decoration or medal involved in an offense under subsection A or B is a Congressional Medal of Honor, in lieu of the punishment provided in that subsection, the offender shall be fined under this title, imprisoned not more than one year, or both. Respondent challenges the statute as a content-based suppression of pure speech, speech not falling within any of the few categories of expression where content-based regulation is permissible. The government defends the statute as necessary to preserve the integrity and purpose of the medal, and integrity and purpose it contends are compromised and frustrated by the false statements the statute prohibits. It argues that false statements have no First Amendment value in themselves, and thus are protected only to the extent needed to avoid chilling fully protected speech. Although the statute covers respondent speech, the government argues that it leaves breathing room for protected speech, for example, speech which might criticize the idea of the medal or the importance of the military. The government's arguments cannot suffice to save the statute. Part 2 As a general matter, the First Amendment means that government has no power to restrict expression because of its message, its ideas, its subject matter, or its content. As a result, the Constitution demands that content-based restrictions on speech be presumed invalid and that the government bear the burden of showing their constitutionality. In light of the substantial and expansive threats to free expression posed by the content-based restrictions, this court has rejected as startling and dangerous a free-floating test for First Amendment coverage based on an ad hoc balancing of relative social costs and benefits. Instead, content-based restrictions on speech have been permitted as a general matter only when confined to the few historic and traditional categories of expression long familiar to the bar. Among these categories are Advocacy intended and likely to incite imminent lawless action See Brandenburg v. Ohio, 1969 Obscenity See Miller v. California, 1973 Defamation See New York Times v. Sullivan, 1964. Speech integral to criminal conduct. See Gibbony v. Empire Storage and Ice, 1949. So-called fighting words. See Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire, 1942. Child pornography. See New York v. Ferber, 1982. Fraud, see Virginia Board of Pharmacy v. Virginia Citizens Consumer Council, 1976. True Threats, see Watts v. United States, 1969. And Speech Presenting Some Grave and Imminent Threat the Government Has the Power to Prevent, 
see Near v. Minnesota X. Rel. Olson, 1931. Although a restriction under the last category is most difficult to sustain, see New York Times v. United States, 1971. These categories have a historical foundation in the court's free speech tradition. The vast realm of free speech and thought always protected in our tradition can still thrive and even be furthered by adherence to those categories and rules. Absent from those few categories where the law allows content-based regulation of speech is any general exception to the First Amendment for false statements. This comports with the common understanding that some false statements are inevitable if there is to be an open and vigorous expression of views in public and private conversation, expression the First Amendment seeks to guarantee. The government disagrees with this proposition. It cites language from some of this court's precedents to support its contention that false statements have no value and hence no First Amendment protection. These isolated statements in some earlier decisions do not support the government's submission that false statements, as a general rule, are beyond constitutional protection. That conclusion would take the quoted language far from its proper context. For instance, the court has stated, false statements of fact are particularly valueless because they interfere with the truth-seeking function of the marketplace of ideas and that false statements are not protected by the First Amendment in the same manner as truthful statements. These quotations all derive from cases discussing defamation, fraud, or some other legally cognizable harm associated with a false statement, such as an invasion of privacy or the costs of vexatious litigation. In those decisions, the falsity of the speech at issue was not irrelevant to our analysis, but neither was it determinative. The court has never endorsed the categorical rule the government advances, that false statements receive no First Amendment protection. Our prior decisions have not confronted a measure, like the Stolen Valor Act, that targets falsity and nothing more. Even when considering some instances of defamation and fraud, moreover, the court has been careful to instruct that falsity alone may not suffice to bring the speech outside the First Amendment. The statement must be a knowing or reckless falsehood. The government thus seeks to use this principle for a new purpose. It seeks to convert a rule that limits liability even in defamation cases where the law permits recovery for tortious wrongs into a rule that expands liability into a different, far greater realm of discourse and expression. That inverts the rationale for the exception. The requirements of a knowing falsehood or reckless disregard for the truth as the condition for recovery in certain defamation cases exist to allow more speech, not less. A rule designed to tolerate certain speech ought not blossom to become a rationale for a rule restricting it. The government then gives three examples of regulations on false speech that courts generally have found permissible. 
First, the criminal prohibition of a false statement made to a government official. Second, laws punishing perjury. And third, prohibitions on the false representation that one is speaking as a government official or on behalf of the government. These restrictions, however, do not establish a principle that all proscriptions of false statements are exempt from exacting First Amendment scrutiny. The federal statute prohibiting false statements to government officials punishes whoever in any matter within the jurisdiction of the executive, legislative, or judicial branch of the government makes any materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent statement or representation. Section 1001's prohibition on false statements made to government officials in communications concerning official matters does not lead to the broader proposition that false statements are unprotected when made to any person, at any time, in any context. The same point can be made about what the court has confirmed is the unquestioned constitutionality of perjury statutes, both the federal statute section 1623 and its state law equivalents. It is not simply because perjured statements are false that they lack First Amendment protection. Perjured testimony is at war with justice because it can cause a court to render a judgment not resting on truth. Perjury undermines the function and province of the law and threatens the integrity of judgments that are the basis of the legal system. Unlike speech in other contexts, Testimony under oath has the formality and gravity necessary to remind the witness that his or her statements will be the basis for official government action, action that often affects the rights and liberties of others. Sworn testimony is quite distinct from lies not spoken under oath and simply intended to puff up oneself. Statutes that prohibit falsely representing that one is speaking on behalf of the government or that prohibit impersonating a government officer, also protect the integrity of government processes, quite apart from merely restricting false speech. Title 18 U.S.C. Section 912, for example, prohibits impersonating an officer or employee of the United States. Even if that statute may not require proving an actual financial or property loss resulting from the deception, the statute is itself confined to maintaining the general good repute and dignity of government service itself. The same can be said for prohibitions on the unauthorized use of the names of federal agencies, such as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, in a manner calculated to convey that the communication is approved, using words such as federal or United States in the collection of private debts in order to convey that the communication has official authorization. These examples, to the extent that they implicate fraud or speech integral to criminal conduct, are inapplicable here. As our law and tradition show, then, there are instances in which the falsity of speech bears upon whether it is protected. Some false speech may be prohibited even if analogous true speech could not be. 
this opinion does not imply that any of these targeted prohibitions are somehow vulnerable. But it also rejects the notion that false speech should be in a general category that is presumptively unprotected. Although the First Amendment stands against any free-willing authority to declare new categories of speech outside the scope of the First Amendment, the court has acknowledged that perhaps there exist some categories of speech that have been historically unprotected, but have not yet been specifically identified or discussed in our case law. Before exempting a category of speech from the normal prohibition on content-based restrictions, however, the court must be presented with persuasive evidence that a novel restriction on content is part of a long, if heretofore unrecognized, tradition of proscription. The government has not demonstrated that false statements generally should constitute a new category of unprotected speech on this basis. We've come to the end of part one of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us. <laughs>